All right. Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5. We are in our 3.5 message in the Gospel of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount this morning, a series that we've been, we started a few weeks ago. And uh, yeah, we're, we're really enjoying this, I believe, learning a little bit uh, more in depth about what Jesus was getting at here in the Sermon on the Mount, especially in the beginning with these Beatitudes that we have been looking at for the last three weeks, and we'll look at the last six of those today. So let me remind us briefly about the scene before us, or the scene before Jesus, right, on this day. Uh, he, he's seeing this crowd of people that have been following him. He's got a few disciples now that have been following him as well. And, and it's time for him to address part of the reason why he's here. Well, actually, the main reason why he's there is the kingdom of God and, and what it looks like and what it looks like to be a member of the kingdom of God. And so he goes up this hill, uh, hillside with his disciples in tow and the crowd following and, and, and he's in a perfect place to be able to speak to them. And, and just as he's about to open his mouth and, and preach the, the greatest sermon probably ever preached, at least that's what most commentators would say, and teaching potentially of all time, it must be said also at this point that uh, I was thinking about it this week as I was preparing, and I don't think I've said this before, but what we've got here is actually like a Coles Notes version of the sermon. Right? Matthew has essentially synthesized it down to the the, the most important essential words and teachings. You can read the whole Sermon on the Mount in about 10, 15 minutes, depending on your, your, your speed reading or how fast you read. Jesus probably spoke for over two hours giving this sermon. And so as Jesus begins, his audience hears a word come out of his mouth in the Greek. And we've learned that that word is makarios, which is translated in your Bibles as blessed. And immediately they know the subject matter. Immediately they're focused and they're like, okay, this is exactly what a good rabbi or a good teacher, a motivational speaker per se in that day if you're Greco-Roman, this is how he would begin a teaching about the good life, about human flourishing. So they're all ears. Both groups of people are all ears listening to him. As we've been working our way through this series so far, we've also come to understand that a good and possibly better definition of the word blessed in our Bibles would be the word flourishing. And so we've been replacing that as we've been going through this series with the word flourishing for blessed. And it's a a really good and accurate translation because it, it gives us more of an idea, quite frankly, of how they would have perceived that in that day. And, and part of the reason for that is because oftentimes it is felt that the teaching, whether the, the, the preacher was teaching wrongly or we interpreted it wrongly, which is often the case, just so you know, we hear it wrongly, and, and it, we, we can come away having, having thought that what, what, what is required is I have to do something to get God's blessings by hearing the word blessed, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. So the idea is, is that I have to be poor in spirit. I have to demonstrate that I'm poor in spirit, that I'm mourning, that I'm meek, that I'm pure of heart, that I'm all these things that are listed here in order to get God's blessing. That's not the idea. That's not the idea at all. It's important for us to know and see that. And so that's why we've, we've switched up the word so that in our modern minds, 
we can maybe get a better picture of what they were hearing in that day. So once again, this quote from his commentary, Jonathan Pennington, one of the commentaries that I've been really enjoying preparing for the series, he said this, Beatitudes are descriptions and commendations of the good life. So, so they are in of themselves descriptions and commendations of the good life. As prophet and philosopher, Jesus is offering you and me and them in that day and inviting his hearers into the way of being in the world that will result in their true and full flourishing now and in the age to come. And so again, um, (laughs) as Christians, as we go about the Christian life in this world today, in our walk, and and we we see everybody's attempt at at chasing after the good life, of, of trying to get there, to get to nirvana, to get to that point in life where you're there, and, and how we can easily flow and fall into that, and at the end of the day, not actually get there. It's really great to be able to come back to the words of Christ and go, okay, Lord, if that's what these are about, then help me, teach me. So last Sunday, we dove deep into the first three Beatitudes and learned that they are a connected triad of sorts, one flowing out of the other, to mark both the ways in which we are seen to be flourishing. So, so you, you, can, you can see in a Christian's life, in a person's life, and by the way, it's only a person who's saved by the grace of God who can flourish in these ways. So it's flowing out of either marks both the ways in which we are seen to be flourishing in this life as well as they are being or are seen to be the marks, the character traits of those who are children of God who have been regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the finished work, of course, of Christ for our salvation. So we we flourish, we learned in the first beatitude, in our poverty of spirit. The realization that we are spiritually bankrupt. The realization at the point in our, in our coming to Christ where we realize we're bankrupt. <laughs> I, I've got nothing. I've got nothing to commend myself to God to, to, because of my good works or because of, you know, you know, Glenn's been reasonably good, not terrible, you know, raised Catholic, good boy, wore a blazer. No. No. No, realizing that I've got nothing. It's so freeing when you think about it, isn't it? Like, it, it, it is, it's so freeing to realize that I have nothing. And it's only by the grace of God and the work of God. So the result of it, only the work of God, is that we are flourishing now and for eternity because the kingdom of God is ours. That's, that's the upside. That's the blessing, right? Is the kingdom of God is ours. So, so we, we, we first flourish in our poverty of spirit, we can look at that and go, this is a good thing that I'm poor in that way. I'm poor in that way. And at the end of the day, as life goes on and I'm truly flourishing despite circumstances and great losses, including the loss of loved ones, and that happens, it happens, we're inheritors of the kingdom of God. It is ours now and for eternity. And so that is the beautiful picture that we see from poverty of spirit. Being reminded now and every day of our poverty of spirit gives us confidence. It should anyway, despite any circumstances that we are living 
we are, in fact, living the good life. So out of this first macarism or beatitude, we move to flourishing as those who mourn. So not, again, so much over losses. But again, now we mourn over repeatedly in our own minds. We mourn over the sin that we continue to commit, but we also mourn over the sin that we committed, which is the reason why Christ mounted another mountain and gave his life for us. And so we mourn over that, like we're, we're, we're actually moving into that ability to be able to mourn over sin. First, our own, our own sin that, that caused his crucifixion on the cross in our place and for our sin. But also then when we look at this world and we, oh man, the brokenness, the evil, <laughs> the destruction, the sin of the world, we mourn over that too. And in that way, we actually join God <laughs> in his mourning over these things. And so that's a, an amazing and important thing for us to see. And so we mourn like this because, well, because the blessing is we will be comforted. We will be comforted. And we know that that comforter or tor is the Holy Spirit of God. And so in our mourning, in our grief, the Holy Spirit of God, again, the one who regenerated us when we recognized our poverty of spirit, comes to us and comforts us when we mourn all of our mourning, including our losses and circumstances that hurt, but especially as we mourn over our sin. And that's an amazing picture because then what happens is that of poverty of spirit, over mourning over sin, we, we, we get given to us. We, we are nurtured into this, this one character trait that none of us, none of us can, can get to in our own power and strength. I can't. Pugilistic young Glenn Davies? No. Meekness. Oh, man. Gentleness, humbleness, as modeled for us by the one who was completely gentle and lowly in spirit, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's the triad. And as you go through that triad, and then we go through the other six today, you realize, as Nick said in his talk this morning, which was wonderful, what an upside-down kingdom Right? This is completely not what they were expecting to hear in that day, and as he continues, as we'll see, nor what the world thinks is the way to flourish. So how are they going to know? <laughs> how are they going to know unless they see Christians flourishing in this way? That's the point. I hope you'll see as we conclude today. So talking about upside, now we turn to our attention to the fourth beatitude, and I want to say before we do that, that I believe, I mean, they're all important, but I believe this particular beatitude, or macarism, is the hinge. This one is the one that, you get this one, you get all of the beatitudes, and you get the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, you get the Bible, okay? You get it, you get the gospel. And so let me put it on screen for you, or we'll have it put on screen for us, and we'll read it. Flourishing are the ones hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Look at this. Because they will be satisfied. Um, I remember growing up, um, and some of you are just going to hate this, but I grew up in the generation that birthed rock and roll, 
you know, I was involved in it, and it, it birthed, of course, the greatest rock bands of all time. Sorry, like, you know, Daft Punk. I'm sorry, really? Uh, no, seriously. What? Hello. Okay. I, I expected to get that. No, but seriously, come on. Like, I mean, you know, I'm a young boy, and, you know, there's this Ed Sullivan show, and there's these lads from England. Their name, by the way, is the Beatles, the greatest rock band of all time. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, they, okay, I believe they were. And, and of course, it was remarkable how, how that happened. But then, then, the next probably most popular rock and roll band of all time came on the scene. And it was interesting how they came on the scene because, of course, you got the Beatles and you got, you know, pretty boy Paul McCartney and, and they're singing songs like She Loves You, Yeah, right? All this type of stuff. And it's wonderful. But these guys decided, no, 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 no. What the world needs is some bad boys, right? But that's what the world needs, right? Yeah, there you go. Thank you very much. So their first hit, I can still, I still remember, I, don't, I think it was the Dick Clark show, whatever, and Mick Jagger is on there, and he's got that scowl on his face, and I can't get no, right? And so you're thinking, Glenn, come on, this is the Beatitudes. What are you doing here? Well, I'll tell you what I'm doing. The point is this. It was true in that day. The main reason why most of us rebelled got the T-shirt too, grew our hair, it's coming back, right? And, and, and dropped out and tuned in and turned on and all those things was because we noticed something in our world and culture at that time that was true then and I think is true today. These guys spoke for a very unsatisfied generation. And why were we so unsatisfied? Well, we, we'd grown up, quite frankly, in the greatest surge and the Industrial Revolution and, and, you know, everybody buying new appliances and seeing all of our parents striving after the good life, right, and mounting up more and more possessions and more and more goods and now being able to actually fly to California in the winter months. Woohoo! Awesome, right? And, and on and on it goes. But what we noticed is even our parents, they were not ultimately satisfied. They were not happy. They just kept going from one thing to the next. And as kids, you're growing up and you're going, hey, you live in middle to upper middle class Toronto. Things are good. You know, you don't want for anything. And yet your parents are like, they got to get a new car or something new or go somewhere in order to be satisfied more. We notice these things as kids, right? We do, right? And so that's one of the reasons why we, um, we rebelled in the way that we did. So like I said, we all grew our hair. We, we rebelled against everything. Anything that our parents thought was safe and good was like, no, right? We'll show you, right? Here's the thing. We ended up just like our parents. You will too. Every generation does. We think we're the ones that are going to beat it, right? Well, we don't. So this is the audience, though, that Jesus is speaking to. Again, we look back 2,000 years and we're like, these guys are, you know, it's such ancient, you know, like blow the dust off your Bible. Seriously? That's exactly the group that Jesus dropped this macarism on as well. This desire, this desire to be fully satisfied is as old as the hills, as they say. It actually started in the garden. God's holding back. You can have more and be truly satisfied it's as old as the hills. 
And this was the whole point of the philosophical beliefs of that day. The good life and human flourishing could be summed up in one word. Satisfied. We're here. We've arrived. That would be the hope. And so Jesus drops this one on them. And again, I can just imagine, I can just imagine at the moment, there's, their minds must be racing after the first three, but now they're hearing, so first they hear flourish, and then they hear satisfied. These are the bookends of this particular beatitude or macarism. And they're like, okay, that's good. Okay, now you're talking. Flourishing, satisfied. Then there's this word righteousness in there, or righteous in there, and they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, no, like that's virtue, right? That's good living. Yeah, we're into that too, you know, keeping the rules and the regs of your Jewish or being virtuous as a Greco-Roman citizen, however that might be defined for you individually or for the corporate culture, whatever it might be. So yeah, righteousness, but hold on. Hunger? Thirst? This is the paradox in this particular beatitude. This is the part where they're going, explain yourself, (laughs) okay? You you need to unpack that one a little bit more for us if you don't mind. So to understand what they heard, we've got to understand something about the bridge between then and this day for sure. See, today, if you and I are thirsty, there's a tap back there, right? There's multiple taps in your homes, And in Squamish, it's nice, cold, clean, good-tasting water, right? You can satiate, satisfy your thirst instantly, right? Sure you can. In fact, (laughs) same thing is true about hunger. Usually all you have to do today is open your fridge or go to a drive-thru, right? And boom, same thing. Not the case in that day. And, and the fact is, is, actually, if we think about it in our day and age, it's like in our affluent world, our choices to quench our thirst, I was thinking about it because I had to go to the grocery store while I was preparing this, and I'm walking through Independent, and I'm like, there, is, there are two aisles and a few freezers full of thirst quenchers. The choices are unbelievable. And then there's a store, I don't know if you know about, just a little bit down from Independent that sells beer and wine. Yeah. And multiple choices that can quench your thirst. Unbelievable amount. Again, for most of the Western world, we've solved these problems of hunger and thirst. Not so in that day. Even even in the bigger cities of those days, like Jerusalem, the bigger cities of those days, Corinth, wherever that might be, the distance between thirst and hunger wasn't so much in kilometers. It was in a matter of days. You think every once in a while we have uh, a boil water advisories? It was constant in those days. It would maybe be two to three days and people would be completely out of food and, and thirsty. So this, listen, again, their ears is, this is bad news. <laughs> this is not good. It's very different to how we might see it. So however, even in those days when everyone was desiring the good life, these words were also, of course, hopefully heard metaphorically. They'd be thinking, yeah, he he's, can't be talking about that because that's really bad. So there must be some deeper meaning here. Everyone was thirsty and hungering for more, of course, for more of the good life, striving to achieve more so as to flourish and never be hungry and thirsty again, at least in that way. So, so metaphorically, they could start to piece this together. And of course, we can too as we look at it. The people in that day, of course, I think would also be saying this. If they could be somehow teleported to our day, 
to today? Could you just imagine, right? They, like back to the future, future to the back. They, they come here, right? And they see what we've got and, and the, the accessibility to all that we have. They, they're, they're, they've got a, they're, they must be thinking, how in the world would it be possible for someone in 2022 to be unsatisfied or discontent? <laughs> Stick around. They'd be shocked, don't you think? We should be, I think. In our consumeristic world that hungers and thirsts after more and more and more, what do we hunger and thirst after? Well, let me give you a few suggestions. More sex? No. In this world today? More possessions? More comfort? More ease? More entertainment, more travel, more and more and more. If you've been striving after those things for 67 years, okay, or whatever, you're, you're going to admit, honestly, right? Like, not only are you poor and have poverty of spirit, but you know what? You got the T-shirt here. You're, we're never fully satisfied. Ever. So in the midst of this, Jesus promises the satisfaction for those who desire, listen, obedience to God's will. And a hunger and a thirst for that, every moment of every day, for more of that, for more righteousness, for more righteous living. A couple of silly little examples of, of how this might actually work out for us. But I don't know about you guys, some of you are probably into ice cream or, or you know, like, I don't know, brownies or some kind of treat, right? Like, oh, I, need, I just want one, right? You can just eat, I just want a brownie, right? right? Sure, <clears throat> you just want a brownie. Me, it's peanuts, right? And, and I, I, have, like, I have stomach issues, and, and so if I eat too many peanuts, I'm not going to sleep well at night, cause it's, but I can't stop. Like, you know, like, like the dry roasted ones, like I get them right. I have one handful. Jenna said, have one handful. Because she knows how I'm going to kill myself, right? And I can't stop. I have two handfuls, three handfuls. Okay, I'm satisfied. No. Um, some of you are probably into this more than I am, but, you know, there's this red wine thing, Merlot, right? Like one, one glass. Let's just take the edge off the day, just very relaxing, and, and uh, oh, then there's two. <laughs> Jenna saw this saying somewhere, I don't know where it was, but it's like, you know, the first is, is a drink. Then, then what happens is the drink has a drink. And then the drink has the man. <laughs> okay, just a little word of caution there for you, right? But here's my point. My point is, we do this all the time with everything in our lives. And, and so we give ourselves to these things and we, we, they never fully satisfy. They give you a little bit of a buzz or a little bit of a break or a little bit of an entertainment, but they never fully satisfied. But we keep going back to that well. What Jesus is getting at here is this. You get a taste for righteousness. You get a taste of it today and then tomorrow and then the next day. You know what? You're going to hunger and thirst for it. And what he's getting at for you and I is, guys, kids, give yourself to that. Glenn, give yourself to that. Put the peanuts away. So the answer Jesus gives is that those who flourish in this life, those who will be fully satisfied in this life, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness.
At the end of the day, what is that word? Holiness. It's described in the Bible. (laughs) Jesus is the model. Perfectly, perfectly holy. This word righteousness is central to the whole sermon. We're going to see it nine times in the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of like the big deal. It's what, what he wants us to live into. It's what he has for us. It's, it's the greatest gift to not live like the sinners that we were and are still, but to become holy. We're going to come into it again in verse 20 of chapter 5 when Jesus says this, For I tell you, speaking to the Pharisees and the religious people especially, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, so it is the big deal. It is the goal. And to get to it, we need to hunger and thirst for that every day. And recognize, hey, next time you're starting to hunger and thirst for brownies or peanuts or three glasses of Merlot, stop. <laughs> and hunger and thirst just for five minutes on the Word of God. It might be helpful. So what follows in the remaining Beatitudes are fleshed-out character traits, I want to suggest to you, of those who are truly flourishing, those who will inherit the kingdom. Look at the next. Flourishing are the merciful because they will be given mercy. This is an interesting one. It's like be merciful or be flourishing as a merciful person, and you're going to get more mercy bestowed on you. So essentially, flourishing are those who, out of the abundance of their hearts, their, their fleshly hearts, not, that, not, not fleshly in sin, but not hearts of stone, regenerated hearts, out of that comes this, this kind of righteousness that they are continually growing in, which shows much mercy to others. The basic idea underneath the Greek word translated merciful is, look at this, to give help to the wretched, to relieve the miserable. (laughs) Not miserable, complainy, cranky people. People whose lives are, because of brokenness and because of circumstances, they're living in misery. So a great synonym, therefore, for mercy would be the word compassion, right? Compassion. But this is really important for us to realize. This kind of mercy is more than just feeling compassion for someone. It's active. It's it's fully active. It's fully active. The very concept of mercy ministries comes out of this. These beatitudes out of this verse in particular. The idea that we should show mercy to others. Jesus made this perfectly clear when after he told, look, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that, that parable? What an amazing parable. He, he, he answered his question by saying, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, well, I guess. The one who had mercy on him. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise, would you? <laughs> Go and show mercy. So another way, though, this is interesting, that we show mercy well is something, honestly, I don't feel many of us do. As It's called forgiveness. We know, or we should know, 
that we have not received the forgiveness of God because he sees us being so forgiving of others. Again, it's not that way around. First, he forgives us, fully forgives us. And that's because we're not forgiving type people. At least I'm not as much as I should be. But it is by God's good grace that we are saved and not by our own works. And so we know this. Besides how few of us ever truly apply, think about it, Matthew 18, to deal with sins or offenses that are done against us or done against a brother or sister in Christ or in the world. doesn't matter. Someone sins against someone. Some of it, Jesus gave us three verses. Simple pattern to follow. Go to your brother. Go to your sister and tell them what they did directly. Speak to that. And if they hear you, you win your brother and sister back. And then there's step two and step three. Hopefully you never have to get there. But then just a few verses later, just a few verses later, because Peter's like, that's a really good teaching, Jesus, on, on how to restore a relationship with someone who's offended me. But honestly, how many times do I need to forgive somebody? Remember that? Jesus is like, how about... 70 times 7? <laughs> Peter, forgive. Forgive. If, if that doesn't speak to our hearts, maybe these words of Jesus will. In Matthew chapter 6, which we'll get to in a few weeks, he says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Is he being serious? I think so. Is this easy? No. That's the call. So finally on this then, for you and I to flourish in this life, which includes the ongoing perpetual receiving of mercy from our God, we must understand that mercy includes both action towards those in desperate, desperate, desperate need and forgiveness of those, yes, even those who have not shown you or me the mercy we feel we deserve. We're to show them mercy and forgiveness as well. The next beatitude is, flourishing are the pure in heart because they will see God. So, so, This beatitude, I believe, is intended, yes, for the disciples at his feet, but also for the crowd as well. However, more directly to his fellow Jews, I believe, he is preaching this one, he is giving this one too. It's likely Jesus was alluding to Psalm 24, and they may have picked up this in verses 3 and 4, where it says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? You all know this, because it's a beautiful song, hymn that we sing, right? Who is it? Well... He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So the problem for the Pharisees and their followers is that this version, uh, their version of this macarism or beatitude might be something like this. Flourishing are those who are outwardly clean or seen to be clean, for they shall see God. Yeah, I know, guys. So this one, when, when they heard this one, they'd be like, This would have really stuck. So this beatitude then is a call for actually, what? Radical internal purity of heart that comes from and only through God's grace. 
this is something we need, to, we need to pray for, purity of heart. Oh, Lord, help me, please. It's, it's, it's actually something that through the ongoing process of sanctification in our lives where we confess our sins again, we realize what they are, we mourn over them, and God teaches us some very valuable lessons, and, and we, we, we improve, we grow, and our heart becomes purer. And with a purer heart, our motivations become purer. And these things that, that we're called into living into we become. It's a marvelous picture. It's incredible, actually. And so the result is they and they alone. It gets the, the emphatic is there, right? Jesus is speaking. They and they alone will see more of God in their lives. And the seeing will also, of course, uh, it, include a growing vision for the needs of others, but it will also be an actual sight and seeing God doing more in your own life in your family's life, in your church's life, and in your community's life. Why? Because you're showing mercy. You're going and making disciples and sharing the gospel with people. It's a beautiful picture. Verse 9 tells us the next beatitude. Flourishing are the peacemakers because they will be called children of God. (laughs) I I love this one, Um, and, and I love our dear denomination. We're we're Mennonite Brethren, MB, stands for Mostly Baptist, if you didn't know, okay? But I love our denomination, and um, our denomination actually takes one of its most distinct distinctives from the Sermon on the Mount and this verse right here. And so our denomination believes in pacifism, uh, which means uh, our denomination believes that we should turn the other cheek, as we will get to in a few weeks, right, in the Sermon on the Mount, and that we should not go to war, we should not kill, and, 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 I, and I, I believe that is fantastic, and I really appreciate that. That said, pacifism isn't narrowly limited to things such as wars and getting into physical fights. It is, again, a character trait of the kind of person who is flourishing. In every circumstances, they are the ones who want to bring into that circumstance true shalom, right? The word for peace, But this is also true. That does not mean they're pushovers or that they're soft. A possibly surprising feature of this kind of peacemaker is this, the word honesty. Real peacemakers are not afraid of telling the culture or another person the truth based on God's word, the truth. They're not afraid to be honest But honestly, in our culture, in our world today, and and I think this is true of many of us as Christians sometimes, especially because we fear what? Persecution and suffering. You know, that's that that hashtag, FOPS, right? Right? Fear of persecution and suffering. You know, we would rather not get into conflict. We would rather not do that. So so generally, we would be like, okay, no, listen, um, I just just want to be really tolerant here. I want to be very accepting and loving. And listen, let's just agree to disagree. Or, you know, let's just be like, it's okay. It's all going to work out good in the end. Hold on. Is that being honest? Is that being honest? Another key feature of a peacemaker is this. Besides being honest, it's called pain. 
It's why Jesus ends the Beatitudes with the next two, which are really one brought together. Biblical peacemakers are people that want people to understand that the ultimate peace they need is peace with God. That's our function and responsibility as peacemakers. Again, of course, Jesus is our perfect model of this kind of peacemaker. Paul in Colossians describes him for us. In Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20, he says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so now we arrive at our final two Beatitudes that are really one with the second one expounding on the first. And so let me just read both of them for you and then we'll conclude. Flourishing are the ones persecuted on account of righteousness because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And by the way, emphatic again, theirs only. Persecution. You up for it? Jesus is saying, you're flourishing if you're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. He ends with, flourishing are you. Notice this? He personalizes it at this point. Whenever people revile and slander and speak all kinds of evil things against you on account of me, Jesus, rejoice and be glad because, the final because, Your reward is great in heaven. In the same way, people slandered the prophets who came before me. So that's pretty remarkable, right? How this all ties together at the end. You're encouraged to be peacemakers, to be honest, to tell the truth to people. It's going to be painful. Have you experienced any pain lately for the cause of Christ? Come on. (laughs) We, we, We need to. You'll flourish when you do. You don't need to be mean. You just got to speak truth lovingly to everyone around us. In his book called Uncomfortable, highly recommended, Brett McCracken says this, in a world that privileges self-preservation and autonomy above transcendent, tra- transcendent truth and costly obedience, Jesus says the kingdom belongs to those who suffer for their godly living and Christ-like convictions. That's uncomfortable. It's a great book. It's about the church. This is what Jesus is calling us into, this way of life. I read in one commentary a great quote from Eugene Peterson. Uh, These are words about how the Bible instructs readers overall um, in a very insightful way of looking at the Beatitudes. He said this, Scripture does not present us with a moral code and tell us live up to this. Thank goodness. (laughs) The bar would be so high, is so high. Nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say, think like this and you will live well. That's good too. He says, rather, the biblical way is to tell a story and in the telling, invite. 
live into this. This is what it looks like to be human in, in the God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. Notice it's, his words are not a, as a Christian. This is us sharing the flourishing of the Christian life with the non-believer and welcoming and inviting them into this too. It's a beautiful picture. So, friends, if our church is to make a real difference in Squamish, first of all, this is our backyard, this is our Jerusalem, first of all, we must recover, I, I believe, the profound paradoxes found in the Beatitudes and specifically the Sermon on the Mount. What are they? These are the things that embody kingdom life. Last is first. There's a paradox, right? Giving is receiving. Dying is living. Losing is finding. Least is greatest. Poor is rich. Weakness is strength. Serving others is ruling. I'm just going to leave you on screen with a quote from a great old British preacher. His name is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Many of you will know who he is. He said this. I find this so encouraging. The glory of the the gospel is that when the church is a little different, somewhat different, no, absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. Let's live into that by living into it in our own lives, making it real in our own lives so that the world can see this. Amen? Pray with me, would you?